0: This is the Go Pack Podcast with your host, Jessica Curtis. Stephen Law. Senate Leadership Fund president. Thank you so much for joining the GOPAC podcast today.
1: I'm really glad to be on with you. I appreciate it. So
0: for those of you listening that don't know, the Senate Leadership Fund is an independent super PAC with one goal to build a Republican Senate majority that will defend America from our friend Chuck Schumer and Senate Democrats' destructive far-left agenda. Stephen brings 25 years of diverse experience in a mix of government, politics, ethics, and management to his role as CEO of the Senate Leadership Fund, One Nation, American Crossroads, and Crossroads GPS, four organizations that have helped to elect and defend new leadership in Congress. With inflation reaching record highs, the Atlanta metro area is ranked one of the hardest hit cities in the entire country. Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia, who was narrowly elected to the Senate in 2020 during a special election, is directly responsible for this Impact on Georgia families after voting for the $1.9 trillion Democratic spending bill. What do you predict will happen in the Georgia Senate race this year?
1: Well, we're very excited about it for several reasons. Uh, fr- first of all, we're, we're thrilled to have somebody with the star power and the common touch of Herschel Walker as our nominee. And also, we, we think our hand got strengthened substantially by Governor Brian Kemp's blowout primary victory. And that's something that I think, obviously, is important for the governor's race, but it's going to have reverberations all through the re- Republican ticket in Georgia. I mean, he's Kemp uh, is going to lead a unified, energized Republican Party to some big wins this fall, and that includes the governor's race. But we also think he's going to have a great teammate in Herschel Walker. And, and lastly, as you know, Raphael Warnock got elected by promising Georgians that he was would be a moderate, that he would work with Republicans and Democrats. Those were his exact words, and, and portrayed himself somebody who would be a middle of the road guy. And, and what happened instead is he came to D.C., he got caught up in the political swamp, and he just votes right down the line with New York Senator Chuck Schumer. And that's been great for New York Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, but it's been terrible for the citizens of Georgia. And one of the things that Warnock is on record for is having supported these gargantuan spending increases that, that experts across the board, econo- even Democratic economists say, are responsible for driving up this inflation. He's voted for the same kind of policies that Biden- war on affordable energy that's driving up prices at the pump. And as we all know, energy is a driver of inflation across the board. And so Raphael Warnock has been responsible for this because he didn't do what he told the voters of Georgia he would do. And we plan to hold him accountable.
0: Absolutely. So the Senate Leadership Fund brought in more than $475 million for the 2020 election. In the first quarter of 22, you ended that quarter with an all-time record of $72.3 million cash on hand what trends in fundraising are you seeing for the 2022 midterms?
1: Well, fundraising is driven more than anything else by the the passion of the donor community. And that's true if you're a Republican or a Democratic group. But our donors are are genuinely worried about whether this country can survive another two years of Joe Biden and liberal Democrats in charge in Washington. I mean, they see the impact on the economy. Many of these people are successful. They look at macroeconomic trends, and they're very, very worried. They look at family budgets, as do we, you know, retirement savings, our schools, our national security. And so there's a huge amount of energy in the donor community, both very small donors, people who write very small checks, uh, as well as people who write large checks to organizations uh, like ours. And so uh, I, I don't know that we'll end up at that same level that we did in 2020 at the end of the day. That was a presidential year and that in, in presidential cycles, even though we don't play in the presidential election, those tend to be much larger years in overall fundraising. But you're right, so far we have hit a record in every single quarter and so we we like what we're seeing so far.
0: That's awesome. I mentioned it before just briefly. You you have quite an impressive career behind you. So with that said, what would you say is the the most valuable lesson that you've learned over over the course of your
1: career. That's nice of you to say. I I, uh, I think if there's one, one thing that I've seen both in, in my own career, but also uh, with others who I respect, I'm reminded of something that my old boss at the U.S. Chamber, Tom Donahue. What he used to say was, "I never hire anybody as dumb as I am." And uh, you know that that's one way of saying you 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 look to hire the best people. You find people who are truly excellent at what they do. They're they're dedicated and they have high integrity. And then you do everything you can to help them succeed, and the whole organization does well in turn. I've had any role in doing that. It's because you know here at least, and other places I've worked, we try to make it a place where we're on a mission that matters where people check their egos at the door and we celebrate everybody's contributions to the successes that we achieve. But there's one thing I've learned uh, more than anything else is that to accomplish anything worthwhile, unless you're Elon Musk, you're not gonna do it on your own. You, you've gotta build a great group of people who are smart, who can work together and uh, who can pull on the oars together to get done what you wanna get done.
0: Amen, and there is so much value in, in having a team. And I can say that from the pack team myself, just having a team surrounding you that is all in on the mission and I love you know I love your mission and I love our mission and and the ability that we have to work kind of in tandem with with you all to try to fight the good fight for the the Republican Party and for the future of America so all told this fall SLF is going to drop 37 million dollars in Georgia 15 million in Nevada and 14 million in Arizona to take Democratic held seats back how else? Are you guys leading the way to defeat Democratic senators in
1: these states? Well, the most important thing we can do in this intermediate phase is to to, to really focus on the issues and the concerns that, that Americans have. And uh, we're, we're going to be doing a fair amount of that uh, over the months ahead, just sensitizing people to uh, both the, the issues they already know that they're wrestling with. High inflation, declining retirement savings, crime in their neighborhoods, other things like that but then also make sure that they they clearly understand the nexus between those concerns and what's been going on in Washington. And the first thing we're gonna do is start holding people accountable, start pointing out uh, how the policies how The budget and spending decisions have contributed to where America finds herself right now. I mean, it's just incredible. You think, go back 18 months, and uh, there are people who may or may not like uh, the former president, may not like his personal style, they may like it, they may love his policies. But the bottom line is that the state of the average American's life has deteriorated so much in the last 18 months since Joe Biden took the oath of office and we swore in a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House. And that's the area where I think we need to communicate and help people to understand that this didn't happen by accident. It didn't come out of thin air. And the truth is, already, most people we talk to, whether it's in polling or in focus groups or otherwise, they already get it. They already know that the leadership in Washington has contributed to a very, very bad situation in terms of America standing abroad, our national security, our border security, and then just the, the pain of filling up your gas tank, the pain of what you have to spend for groceries or shoes, or getting basic supplies, or now even you know baby formula. There, there's just been this, this very evident incompetence and, and, and even worse than that, indifference on the part of, of the current management in Washington to the hardships that America is experiencing because of these bad policies. Yeah, it, it is unfortunate.
0: What are some races you guys are keeping an eye on just for our, our listeners to this podcast? Give us some of your top targets and some races that people should be paying attention to that that they may not necessarily be looking at right now.
1: Absolutely. And there, there are a couple that are Kind of interesting and exciting uh, particularly in terms of the the races that the seats that are currently held by Democrats that will contest but first on the Republican side uh, one thing that uh, makes this a more challenging cycle than we might otherwise experience is we have a significant number of retirements including in you know a state or two that that you can't just take for granted I think Pennsylvania would be the top of the list you know Pat Toomey made it look easy winning two uh, terms but those were tough tough fights. Each of those two races uh, was won by a very narrow margin, and Senator Toomey uh, ran just absolutely pitch-perfect campaigns both times to win. I think Pennsylvania has become slightly more Republican over that time, but it's still very, very tough terrain. The The ultimate marquee race, whether it's uh, Dr. Oz or Dave McCormick uh, versus John Fetterman, is going to be a very tough hard-fought race and and probably the one open seat that we're most concerned about. Uh, We've got open seats also in North Carolina, Ohio, and Missouri. Those are much more, I think, favorable to us. North Carolina, uh, we've contested heavily. Democrats have certainly poured hundreds of millions of dollars in trying to win North Carolina Senate races. They've come up short three times in a row. We think that Ted Budd's going to be a good candidate. Sherry Beasley um, somewhat of a lackluster candidate. At the end of the day, we feel good about that, but we'll be active there. Uh, I think at the end of the day, Ohio and Missouri will be fine. We, there's a, a difficult primary underway in Missouri. That's one that uh, where the outcome could have an impact on our competitiveness there. And we're, we're certainly looking at that. And then the last, I would say, really the only incumbent who I think faces a, a tough race is Senator Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, but he has really stepped up to the plate. He's running an effective campaign. You know, we're, we're in there as well. And I think at the end of the day, he is likely to draw an opponent who is pretty far to the left of where Wisconsinites are. I think the state right now is in a more conservative and Republican mood. And I feel good about our opportunities there. But still, that's uh, that's one that we have to watch carefully. Gotcha.
0: So a little known fact to the listeners, you you used to serve as chief of staff to Senator McConnell. Serving under him, what qualities did you observe are most important to be an impactful leader such as Senator
1: McConnell is? Well, in terms of his leadership of the caucus, or I guess in the Senate side, it's called the conference. Mm -hmm. I've seen a a number of, of Republican leaders over the years, and they've all had great qualities. But what I think Leader McConnell brings is an innate ability to apply strategy to situation, mark out a goal, and then convince the caucus, everybody from Susan Collins to Ted Cruz, that it's in the interest of the, of the entire conference to hang together, to be unified, and to pursue that goal together. And then the last and I think most important trait that he exhibits all the time and that I think earns him the respect of his colleagues is that he's willing to go out in front of the army, take all the arrows from the left-wing media. If it if it's a uh, a strategy that that you know garners controversy from them, and, and be the first one to lead. And I think that's the sort of thing that builds courage, unity within the caucus and the, and the conference. Sorry, and, the, and people are willing to support it. And I, one recent example of that was uh, Senator McConnell's uh, recognition that the Democrats' so-called voter integrity law was was basically a means of nationalizing voter systems weakening voter integrity requirements and making the entire system across the country far more susceptible to fraud. And and a lot of other provisions in there, including taxpayer funding for campaigns and statehood for the District of Columbia and other really dumb ideas. Now, when, when the issue presented itself, there was a huge head of steam behind it. It was conflated with voter suppression and even with civil rights uh, you may recall that that Joe Biden said that if you're against this, you're for Jim Crow 2.0. He said, you're basically a traitor, just like the, uh, the Confederates in the Civil War. I mean, just completely incendiary and irresponsible language. Well, Senator McConnell was willing to take him on, uh, take the point and be the advocate for shutting that uh, legislation down. Uh, he built a strategy around it. He got his conference unified behind it and he won. And uh, th- those sorts of things take a lot of preparation, a lot of effort. You have to know your conference well, each and every member. You've got to work each one of them carefully. But most importantly, you've got to be willing to put your own self on the line to fight those fights and get everybody unified.
0: So before I let you go, Stephen, give us one final thought.
1: This is going to be, in terms of the national atmosphere, the best election environment that Republicans have run in since at least 2010, maybe 1994, maybe even 1980. Just an incredible election cycle. One of the things that makes Senate races interesting is that a great environment alone doesn't help you win. It, it requires good candidates who can take the fight to the Democrat. We see great opportunities in places like Arizona, Georgia, New Hampshire, and Nevada. But in each of those races, to varying degrees, the Democratic candidate is not letting the grass grow under their feet. They're getting ready. They're raising a huge amount of money. And in some of these cases, they have formidable fundraising war chests already, especially Mark Kelly in Arizona, and Raphael Warnock mm-hmm. in Georgia. And in some of these states, we already have candidates we're very excited about, like Herschel Walker, who we talked about earlier, Adam Laxalt in Nevada, we didn't mention him. In Arizona, and New Hampshire, we still have primaries. And the concern that, and we're going to just have to watch it closely, is will we nominate people who can put together the same kind of aggressive campaign? They don't need to raise as much as Kelly or the Democrat uh, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, but they will need to put together full-fledged campaign. If we have that, we can be competitive there. And then the last race I'll mention because of that principle about the importance of candidates, people should keep a close watch on the state of Washington, where one of our very best Republican challengers, Tiffany Smiley, is uh, challenging Patty Murray, who's uh, been around that, been in that seat for far too long. Yeah. Uh, Washington state has long been viewed as a democratic state and it is vote, voted pretty much down the line presidential, uh, governor, senate, and and most of the house districts. But there's something going on there. People are concerned a great deal about crime. They're concerned about inflation. And Patty Murray is part of all those problems. And uh, Tiffany Smiley is well worth taking a look at because she's raising money. She's talking about the things that matter to voters. We think she's a real compelling choice if we can make Washington State competitive in a year that will generally be a good election environment.
0: Good intel. That's awesome. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to a Republican majority in the U.S senate after november well hopefully
1: we'll be popping champagne corks and uh and not having to drink whiskey from the bottle
0: amen (laughs) amen (laughs) <laughs> Take care. All right, thanks a lot. There's a huge agreement amongst a vast majority of Americans on many key issues. To help Americans recognize the need to unify, former GOPAC chairman and former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich describes the imperative for forming an American majority coalition and the impact an American majority could have on 2022 and beyond. This is the first of a four-part series that the GOPAC podcast is doing with Former Speaker Gingrich, outlining the potential for a dramatic shift in the American political and governmental system. An American majority, not a Republican majority. Here's part one.
2: Part one An American majority, not a Republican majority. This is the first of four parts outlining the potential for a dramatic shift in the American political and governmental system. These ideas are dedicated to turning a temporary opportunity into a permanent change that can create a stable, reform government for several generations. The combination of big government socialism, woke radicalism, a governing performance disaster, and weak personalities at the top of the Democratic Party is creating an opportunity for a new American majority to emerge that brings together everyone who rejects all three components and supports common-sense efforts to create a better country for everyone. Our polling at the American Majority Project, which is available to everyone, makes clear that free market capitalism beats big government socialism by 59% to 16%. In fact, if forced to choose, swing voters pick free market capitalism by 82% to 18%. Woke cultural issues are even more decisively in a minority. By 67% to 20%, Americans oppose transgender men competing in women's sports. An overwhelming 75% believe there are only two genders. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's even more common ground in America. Some 84% favor parents having the right to see everything their children are being taught in school. By the same margin, Americans think American ideals are worth fighting for. By 79% to 12 Americans favor religious freedom. By a similar 77 to 12, Americans oppose the canceling and censoring of people and speech. An amazing 91% oppose racial discrimination. Only 6% think people should be given preference due to their race. What is emerging is the potential for an American rather than a Republican majority. If everyone who opposes big government socialism and left-wing woke ideology can work together, there is enormous potential to get good things done. This potential requires Republicans to think much more broadly about their language, proposals, and actions. Done correctly, the 2022 and 2024 elections can bring together Republicans, Independents, and anti-left Democrats into a grand coalition comparable to the one President Franklin Delano Roosevelt created in the 1930s, which in many ways has defined our politics for 90 years. Building an American majority does not require accepting the policies of the left. There are tens of millions of Democrats who are tired of high food and gas prices, rampant crime, the collapse of the border, the inconsistencies of left-wing bureaucrats. This American majority can reject every element of the left, and still be a broad coalition of Republicans, independents, and anti-left Democrats. The members of the American majority are those who favor common-sense solutions to the challenges that face America and oppose those who, for their own hard-left ideology, try to force unworkable solutions down American throats. The key ideas for this new American majority were developed and explained by Ronald Reagan, a Democrat-turned-Republican. As a movie star, Reagan knew his following was much broader than the Republican Party, which, according to Pew Research after Watergate, had dropped to 21% of all Americans by 1975. Internal polls at the Republican National Committee were even more disheartening, with only 17% identifying as Republican. There was a real danger that the GOP would become a minority party. It was clear that a base mobilization campaign would get nowhere with a base that small. There had to be a base broadening campaign, and former Governor Reagan understood this imperative. then Canada Reagan, speaking at the second conservative political action conference in 1975, said,
1: Let's have a new first party, a Republican party, raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels, a banner instantly recognizable as standing for certain values which will not be compromised. Yes, we must broaden our base, but let's broaden it the way we did in 1972. Because those Americans, Democrats and independents and Republicans, are still out there looking for a banner around which to rally. And we have what they want, what they're seeking. But they don't know that. And sometimes I wonder if we know it.
2: You know, Reagan's vision of no pale pastels repudiated the Republican establishment's desire to take the GOP to some kind of mushy middle where Republicans could pretend to be frugal liberals and could be intimidated into accepting the establishment's dumbest and weirdest ideas. When Reagan's vice president, George H.W. Bush, was behind by 19 points in May 1988, there was a temptation to move to the middle, but the Reagan spirit was still there. The strategy was adopted to expose Governor Michael Dukakis for the liberal he was. After five months of defining Dukakis as a Massachusetts liberal, Bush won with 54%, which meant that one out of four voters switched between May and November. That was the power of Reagan's bold colors. After the damage done by Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer, there's never been a more opportune time for a bold colors GOP. Done correctly, it will attract millions of independents and anti-left Democrats. Then, in 2023 and 2024, if the Republican majorities in the House and Senate govern with an American majority attitude rather than a narrower Republican majority attitude, there will be an opportunity to win in 2024 with a campaign that attracts everyone but the hard left. Many Republican governors already understand the power of articulating solid conservatism while solving problems with common sense and focusing on helping people improve their lives. The key is for Republican House and Senate candidates and members and their staffs to learn this. They must create both the campaign in 2022 and the opening round of governing as a majority in 2023. The examples of the Republican governors. And the republican congress should create an opportunity for the republican presidential candidates to compete for the nomination of an american majority movement not just a traditional republican party the difference between an american majority and a republican majority is so important to the future of the country that i am dedicating four consecutive areas to outline how it can work next i'm going to talk about president reagan his approach to governing, and his re-election. Then I'm going to turn to the bipartisan nature of the contract with America. I'll explain how it helped us win a majority for the first time in 40 years and then win re-election for the first time in 66 years since 1928. Finally, I'm going to talk about the polling data from the American Majority Project, which indicates the potential for a citizen's majority in 2022 That transcends the traditional parties.
0: That was part one. Stay tuned for part two in our next episode where Newt will discuss the American majority we can build by understanding the one that emerged to support President Ronald Reagan back in the 80s. This has been the GOPAC podcast. Learn how we're educating and electing a new generation of Republican leaders at GOPAC.org.